Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello everybody. This being the anniversary of the start of the show, every year in October or November, I give myself a present for, you know, sticking with it, and I let myself go off piste and do a show on a topic that I want to do. This year, I have to admit, I am a bit overwhelmed by everything. At work, I am basically doing like 1.5 jobs at least, uh, as I am doing a whole bunch of work as part of my state's COVID-19 response, in addition to my regular duties. Meanwhile, I'm juggling my kid's school situation, my wife is having her usual round of health problems, and just to spice things up, this past week I hurt my knee. As usual, with the glorious American medical system, it took me a full day to see a doctor, I was on hold for two hours just to talk to the guy, and uh, we had to fight tooth and nail to get imaging within the same week as my injury. The injury isn't that bad. The doctor thinks I'll probably only need physical therapy, but who knows how long it's going to take for me even to get a, the referral to the orthopedist at this rate. Of course, I'm one of the lucky ones. I have good insurance. What a joke of a system. In any case, uh, I could try and pull something out of the air for the potiversary and end up making my life harder, uh, but that would probably make more work for me and still leave you guys with a substandard episode. So, that said, I also don't want to leave you guys with dead air for a month, um, so I'm going to steal a trick from American sitcoms from the 1990s and offload the work onto the past. Yes, it's going to be a clip show, but not that kind of clip show. You see, every year the Agora Podcast Network, of which I'm a proud member, uh, puts together these clip shows for, in October where that we call Agoraphobia. Now, let me say what I mean by that. We each do like 10 minute segments uh, and then uh, send it in and someone at the network compiles them together into shows and we release one a week. And of course it's October so it's sort of Halloween themed. Uh, so they're all spooky stories. I've done a bunch of them at this point over the years and I had a lot of fun with them. And I should say I had a lot of fun with them despite the fact that like I hate ghost stories and things like that. So my version of agoraphobia is always 
taking this script of making it somewhat spooky and doing it in my own particular way, as you'll hear. So what I'm going to do, it, I've been doing these for a bunch of years now, and they've always been fun, and um, they're on this separate feed that I know not everyone listens to. So I'm, I'm checking a bunch of boxes here. First off, I'm making less work for me. Second off, you guys will have fun because I think this is quality stuff. Um, third, this is a nice big long advertisement to go check out the Agora Podcast Network feed um, where you'll hear the rest of the Agoraphobia stuff uh, over the last five years and then all the other stuff we slash I have done. Um, some of them uh, I didn't participate in, you know, obviously... You know, I'm not in everything, but a lot of times when anyone does a crossover, it lands there. And I've done a lot of them. They've been a lot of fun. If you want to hear me talk about urban planning, I've got a bunch of stuff over there and I'm not done uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Steve and I have been doing a bunch of stuff on transportation and we're sort of uh, plodding our way through a bunch of stuff that we planned out a couple years ago uh, as we have time to work on them. So anyway... All this is to say, listen to this episode, then go check out the Agora Podcast Network feed. I don't make any money from you going there, I just have a lot of stuff there, and be, you'd probably enjoy listening to it. And I would enjoy getting it listened to. So, I'm not going to just straight up play each of these segments that I've made over the last five years. I mean, I am going to do that. But uh, I will at least have a little bit between each segment where I comment a little bit on... Um, you know, if, if anything has changed in my understanding of the topic, anything I would change if I could go back kind of thing. And I'm also going to leave in uh, Thomas Daly of American Biography Podcast. Uh, he does the, uh, the intros and sort of puts everything together, and his stuff's fun, too. So I'm, I'm leaving all that in. Enjoy, basically. Let's give it a listen. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia. Hello, my pretties, and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under all the beds, and continue, if you dare. In the stunning finale of the Agoraphobia Phenomenon, our last two podcasters present stories to chill your soul. First, Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia shares the surprising fate of Rhode Island's founding father, Roger Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, the apple tree that ate Roger Williams. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Jacobs. I host the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. But today, I'm here to talk to you about Rhode Island, my adopted homeland. In Rhode Island, there is no more revered figure than Roger Williams. I use that absolute consciously, because while this state contains people from a plethora of homelands and a wide variety of creeds, 
and while the reputation of the Founding Fathers has become somewhat tarnished of late due to modern concerns about their slave ownership and ideas about race, Roger Williams' ideas remain relevant, and his character remains largely untarnished by time. Now, for those of you not up on their obscure New England historical figures, Roger Williams was a religious nonconformist who was exiled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1635. His crime was preaching that there was not enough separation between the government of the colony and the church of the colony, and that Native Americans were people too, and should be treated with dignity. Given that this was around 20 years before the Salem Witch Trials, and many, many years before we all started treating the Native Americans like people, you can judge for yourself the absurdity of his statement. Following his exile, Roger Williams had two aces up his sleeves as he walked off into the wilderness. First, while he had angered many in Massachusetts, obviously, he had also won many people over. Many of these men and women had promised to follow Williams at a later date, once he found a new home for them. The second advantage Williams had was that, well, he was like the only white man who had stood up in front of his peers and said that the Native Americans should be treated like people. In fact, he would go on to write the first ever dictionary of a Native American language, a book that is still an important source for linguistic scholars despite some errors. So when Roger Williams showed up on the shores of beautiful Narragansett Bay, he had friends who were already there, and per his word, he treated them fairly and with respect. The land that now makes up the state of Rhode Island is probably the only state or former colony whose land was purchased in a way that Native American legal traditions would have recognized as fair and binding. So take that, Massachusetts. Now, this segment isn't about the life of Roger Williams or the history of Rhode Island. For that, I heartily recommend that you check out Jamie Redfern's excellent History of the United States. Jamie does a superlative job of not completely ignoring Rhode Island like most scholars, and for that, his show gets my approval. For now, suffice it to say that as far as we know, Roger Williams lived an exemplary life of service and morality. He spent his life trying to organize Rhode Island Colony into something coherent, and always using persuasion and never forced to do so. Though Rhode Island remained a fractious and independent place, whenever Williams was around, he was usually able to mend fences and bring people together. Rhode Island remained on good terms with their Narragansett neighbors until a few years before his death, when a sneak attack on the tribe's women, children, and elderly was conducted by militia from Massachusetts and Connecticut without the permission or knowledge of Rhode Island Colony. Several Rhode Islanders were in fact killed in the defense of the Narragansett, or were hung after being captured by the foreign militias. Nonetheless, the Narragansett warriors, who returned to a village full of slain women and children, were not exactly in a discriminating mood, and began attacking white settlements near them, regardless of whether they were in Connecticut or Rhode Island or Massachusetts. Providence itself was burned to the ground in vengeance for this unprovoked attack, and relations between the tribe and Rhode Island colony and state never really recovered. Though his life's work of building good relations between the Native Americans and the colonists ultimately failed, and failed within his lifetime, William's ideas would have a life far beyond the man himself. By the time of his death a few years later, Roger Williams was advocating that a firm wall be erected between the secular affairs of government and religious matters. Given the corruption of worldly organizations, Williams turned his back on all forms of organized religion, and publicly stated that the worship of the Native Americans was no more or less worthy than that of a Christian. Despite this, Williams remained a deeply spiritual man, and would hold impromptu prayer meetings with whatever friends of his happened to be around, no matter their color or creed. 
Though the coming years would see Rhode Island become more and more a conventional colony, and then state, and though Roger Williams' ideas were initially somewhat forgotten, Rhode Island was the last state to ratify the Constitution, and to this day retains a strong independent streak, characteristic of a place founded by nonconformists. The spear-wielding figure on the state flag and on top of the state house building is known unofficially as the Independent Man, and harkens back to the ideals of independence and free thought that the state's founder espoused. As for the man himself, when he died, Williams was not at the top of his fame or reputation. Williams was buried in a simple grave on his own property, near what was soon to become the city of Providence's industrial heart. Within a generation, his house collapsed, and the location of his grave was lost. Reflecting the passing of Williams' memory from popular consciousness, even within his own state, as the colony became more and more conventional. But this was just the start of a much longer story. You see, because it was in the heart of the first city in the country to truly industrialize, Williams' property between North and South Main Streets did not lie undisturbed. Development intervened. It was found by accident in 1740, and was hastily covered over after a small boy was lowered into the grave to confirm that it did, in fact, contain human remains. At that time, just bones. As themes of religious toleration, racial unity, and personal liberty became more important in American society, Williams' memory was rehabilitated over the first century of the new country's existence. By 1860, at a time when the fabric of the United States was coming apart and people were looking for foundational figures on the right side of the slavery question, an effort started to create a real monument to honor Williams. Local industrialist and intellectual Zachariah Allen spearheaded an effort to move Williams' remains to a proper burial site and began digging holes around what had once been Williams' property. This effort was ended by the intervention of Williams' great-great-great-granddaughter, who considered this work a desecration. But before the work was stopped, Allen found what he considered to be the gravesite. The bones had by that point mostly rotted away. But there were some fragments, teeth and nails, and one very charismatic apple tree root. You see, in this particular hole, Mr. Allen found a root, located roughly where the coffin should have been, according to Mr. Allen. And this root had grown in a way that suggested to Mr. Allen that it grew along the top of Mr. Williams' body and presumably derived sustenance from the body's decomposition. This root was used by Allen as evidence of the site's being the actual burial site, and so he gathered such scattered remains as he found, placed them in an urn, and put them in the care of Betsy Williams, the aforementioned great-great-great-granddaughter. Williams deposited the remains in the family mausoleum. The route was kept by Mr. Allen, and it began a strange journey through the museums of Rhode Island. Some years later, Betsy left the family properties on nearby College Hill to the state, with the proviso that it become a park and that they erect a proper monument to Williams' memory. Over the years, Rhode Island has made many attempts to honor its favorite founder, with somewhat varying levels of success. Betsy Williams' property on College Hill was indeed turned into a park, Terrace Park, which was frequented rather often by Providence's native son, H.P. Lovecraft. But the statue of Williams was not built until funding was provided by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. The current 15-foot granite statue that stands today is as much a testament to the occasional shortcomings of the otherwise wonderful WPA as it is to Williams. Looking out over the city from the old family property on College Hill, the statue invites the viewer to contemplate what kind of mind would be required to make a statue built out of granite look like one made out of concrete. One also wonders whether the sculptor had ever actually seen a human person standing before. Williams stands there stiffly, 
his legs not quite in a comfortable position, one arm held out, palm down, at a ninety-degree angle to his body. Modern observers on the Internet have noted the statue's extremely unnatural posture would be perfect if Roger Williams were actually standing in front of a DJ booth, hand extended as he scratched some sick beats on his turntable. Whatever the case above ground, the statue also marks the final resting place of the human remains pulled from the grave by Zachariah Allen, which were eventually placed in a small mausoleum below the statue. As for the non-human remains, the root that ate Roger Williams has become a popular curio at the nearby John Brown Museum. People come from around the world to view the carnivorous tree, apparently much to the annoyance of the museum conservators. It is indeed an open question as to whether the root belongs at this museum at all, as the John Brown Museum is intended to tell the public the story of the Brown family, a group of notorious slave profiteers, and the elitist Anglo-Saxon university that they founded. Roger Williams, who opposed slavery at every turn and who lived before the university's foundation, is certainly not within the writ described, nor is a weird story about a carnivorous tree. Nonetheless, the root is there, nailed to the outline of a small coffin. I suspect that no other museum in the state really wants it either. The original site of Roger Williams' grave is now part of the Roger Williams National Monument. It is not the smallest national monument in the country, but is certainly in contention, and it is only a few blocks from my house. The monument consists of one city block in downtown Providence, the location of the first houses in the settlement founded by Williams, and indeed Williams' own house. A small, tasteful monument and plaque have been erected in the park marking the site of what may have been Williams' grave, a memorial that would likely have been much more to Williams' liking than the simultaneously garish and drab robo-Williams built on the top of College Hill in Terrace Park. For those who believe in such things, I am told that both Terrace Park and the tree root are prone to giving people otherworldly sensations. It is said that the tree root was there to keep Williams in his grave, and that now he wanders. Certainly, having a giant brutalist DJ on top of my grave would make me a bit unquiet, but maybe that is just me. As for the tree root, it is felt to contain great malevolence, like one of the trees from the old forest. I leave it to you to determine for yourself if this bit of wood is a malevolent force, whether it looks like it grew over a body at all, or whether it was even ever in Roger Williams' grave. For myself, I am somewhat skeptical. I would be remiss if I closed for the day without mentioning two things. First, Providence is a very old town, and there are plenty of spooky sights for those so inclined. If you're in the area and are interested in learning more about the ghosts of Providence, Terrace Park is the starting location for the Providence Ghost Tour, a walking tour of haunted locations in the east side and downtown that is supposed to be a lot of fun. So you can check that out at ProvidenceGhostTour.com. Also located nearby is St. John's Episcopal Church, future site of the Center for Reconciliation. This museum, when it is opened, will help people explore the often-overlooked history of slavery in New England. For my money, a few tree roots are nowhere near as scary as the ability of people to rationalize cruelty to their fellow humans. Though not yet open at the time of writing, they will be soon, and they are already offering walking tours of the College Hill area for groups of five or more. As the leaves change and the fall comes on, it would be a great way to experience a side of Providence not often discussed, and the cathedral itself, which is a quite lovely building, is conveniently located near a number of historic sites, not the least of which being the National Monument, as I just mentioned. There's also a number of wonderful restaurants in the area, and a plethora of other things to see and do. 
I do hope you check it out if you're in town, and if they are not open quite yet, their contact information is available via their website, which is a long thing, so just Google the Center for Reconciliation. If you don't have five or more people in your party, I haven't been on the tour yet, and I would like to. So feel free to email me at wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com. You can also learn more about my podcast at wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com, uh, or you can check out the Facebook page, which is Wittenberg to Westphalia. Thanks very much, and thanks for listening. That was fun. Um, Zachariah Allen was a real crank. Very interesting, uh, very eccentric gentleman of science of his times, I suppose I should say. Um, obviously, I do not think that we have any good evidence that the apple tree root ate Roger Williams or particularly marked the location of his grave or anything like that. A couple things I should just add in there. Um, I should probably apologize to John Brown uh, John Brown's ghost. He was the founder of Brown University and was a known anti-slavery advocate. Um, he was a Quaker and his religious beliefs led him to very strongly oppose the slave profiteering that his father did. Uh, when his father died, obviously he inherited a whole bunch of money that he considered, you know, unclean. Uh, and so his way of trying to give back to the world, since he couldn't really go around buying back the slaves his father had brought over and bring them back to Africa or anything like that. Um, that damage had been done for the most part. Uh, and he was already using his fortune to sponsor abolitionist activities. So his way of uh, making himself right with God was founding uh, Brown University, essentially. Um, other members of the family would contribute later who were maybe less savory than the man himself, but, uh, yeah, so, um, I should, I should clarify that aspect, and, uh, Brown did have a lot to do with sponsoring the Center for Reconciliation, actually, so, um, let's move on to that, because that's the next thing I wanted to say. They have a better website now, um, it's cfrri.org, Center for Reconciliation, Rhode Island, right? Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, I'll try to remember, the um, museum itself, the museum itself, I don't think they've ever actually opened. Um, there's a lot of issues with the building. Um, they're located in an old Episcopal cathedral, uh, the Cathedral of St. John on North Main Street, as I mentioned in that episode. And it's it's got some, um, it, it just needs a lot of work in terms of renovation. They've already started building up a collection, um, some of which is, uh, is particularly important. There was, um, there was a monument, which was just a little plaque that, um, someone created to, uh, recognize a race riot that happened in Providence that, um, at one point, uh, after much haranguing and back and forth got put in the middle of this traffic circle that no one could access. Uh, calling it a traffic circle is actually doing it too much justice. Um, eventually, uh, Rhode Island DOT got together with the community, uh, pulled up the plaque, and it's been moved over to the cathedral, which is only like half a block away. So, 
they, they've they've built up their their collection a bit, but mostly they're focused right now on. Uh, hmm. They've built up a pretty nice collection. They they they're host to uh, moving expedition uh, exhibitions that come in from Brown and some other places. Um, I'm not sure how open they are to the public. And then, of course, with COVID, nothing's open. But that said, it does seem like they are continuing to work their way towards opening. Um, that said, opening in a real physical way. Uh, if the pandemic ever ends, we may actually get there. Uh, that said, you know, they've got a really great website with a lot of interesting resources. So again, I'm going to post a link and go check them out. The one last thing is that um, I no longer live half a block from uh, uh, the Roger Williams National Memorial. I now live uh, a couple blocks away from Roger Williams Zoo and Park, which is the uh, larger estate of Betsy Williams, who was a great uh, philanthropist, uh, particularly with her will, um, and was don a, a fairly massive estate was donated to the city of Providence, despite the fact that she actually lived in Cranston, Rhode Island. So that made this weird bite out of Cranston that's still there to this day because all that land was deeded to Providence. Um, anyway, the, the park itself is, is wonderful. It sort of um, happened around the same time as Central Park, and it's got a very similar aesthetic. Uh, it's a great place to go walking and stuff, and of course there's the zoo, which is a fairly low admission, um, and it's a really nice little zoo. The animals are well taken care of, and uh, you can see it all in a day and not get completely exhausted. Nice little, um, nice little playground for the kids in there, and a petting zoo and all that stuff, so. Uh, and some, and then some really interesting animals for everyone else to look at, so. Anyway, um... Let's move on to the next one. In this, the penultimate episode of Agoraphobia 2017, we feature a coven of witch tales. In our first segment, Benjamin Jacobs, host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation, discusses Martin Luther's advice to posterity on how best to root out witchcraft through rather scatological strategies. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs. I am, usually, the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. But today, thanks to agoraphobia, I'm here to discuss Martin Luther and the witch trials of the early modern period. Ooh. I'd like to begin today with a quote from Stephen Osment's book, The Serpent and the Lamb. Chronic, Luther, and the Making of the Reformation. And uh, just before I do give the quote, while my show is usually rated clean in honor of agoraphobia, there's some coarse language here. Quote, For the brave at heart, Luther also recommended profane language and gestures against the devil, who, being a, quote, proud beast, end quote, can be readily driven away by insult. For starters, the moment he tempts you, quote, fart in his face, end quote. And if his, quote, milk thieves, and unquote, uh, which is milk diven, the devil's indentured witches, if the milk diven turn up at one's house and hex the butter churn so that they may steal the milk and make butter for themselves, one must immediately, quote, drop one's pants and crap in the churn, end quote. 
Luther, of course, is widely renowned as the founder of the Protestant Reformation, and in that regard is widely viewed as something of a saint-like figure in some circles. In fact, October this year marks the 500th anniversary of his famous nailing of his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. And, of course, there are massive festivities to mark this in said city. And yet here we have him talking about defecating in a butter churn, and he has a special word for witches specifically who steal milk. What is going on? To answer this question and more, we're going to have to look at the history of witchcraft in the early modern period. The issue of witchcraft in the Middle Ages is one of great interest to many, both in academia and in the general public, due to the intensity of the narratives involved, which seem to offer something for people of any interest. For those with an interest in the occult, of course, this is a prime topic of horror, while for those interested in social or political history, this is a key, well-documented example of the victimization of marginal populations. For those with a more general interest, the narrative of persecution has become general in the zeitgeist of the West, due to a variety of plays, movies, and books on the subject of witch trials. What is often less well-known is that the famous witch trials in the United States were far from the high point of the phenomenon, and indeed represented some of the last and least bloody entries in the annals of the subject. In fact, the peak of witch-hunting activity occurred in the chaotic period following the Protestant Reformation in the Holy Roman Empire, much of which is in modern Germany, during the period from 1580 to 1630. It's probably not coincidental that during this peak, the majority of the Thirty Years' War took place, during which time up to a third of the population of Germany perished due to starvation, disease, battlefield violence, military reprisals, and religious persecution. This conflict was between the Protestant princes of Germany and their various Catholic allies, which included the Pope, and then the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor and his Protestant allies. This war was one of the first where the printing press was deployed for propaganda purposes. Both sides, Catholic and Protestant, tried to present their cause as one in which their belligerency was justified by the righteousness of their religion, in opposition to the polluted faith of their opponents. The resulting large volume of printed books, pamphlets, broadsheets, and posters were targeted at the increasingly powerful and literate middle and lower classes of Europe, as the war demanded never-before-seen levels of taxation, requisition, supplies, and the conscription of men to serve in the massively expanded infantry armies of the day, the loyalty of the populace was more important than ever. This context makes engaging with the reality of witch trials exceedingly difficult. Suffice it to say that the Protestant printers did a very good job of portraying the Catholic authorities as bloodthirsty burners of heretics, a portrayal that has lasted, and which has come to color the popular view of the Catholic authorities of the Middle Ages. Since the Catholics were so happy to burn Protestants, by extension it is often assumed that they were also behind the burning of witches, and that this practice was common throughout the entire Middle Ages before there was a Protestant alternative to this Catholic brutality. The reality is that witch hunts were almost unheard of before 1400, that Catholics and Protestants were equally adept at burning witches, and that Protestants engaged in some pretty nasty anti-Catholic persecution themselves. Unpacking all of this is far too large a topic for this 10-minute segment, but let us focus on the place of witchcraft before 1400 in European society, and then get to the main topic for today, Martin Luther and his fondness for defecating in butter churns. To begin with, the people of the Middle Ages did not differentiate between the natural and the supernatural. Witches, magic, science, and religion were all part of the same worldview. In the absence of the critical tools of modern science, which are as much intellectual as they are physical, there was little if any separation between the supernatural and the natural as we think of it today. In the absence of any method to prove it, 
me saying that the rye crop died because of a fungal infestation is as legitimate as the guy next to me saying that it was angry spirits. To be sure, there were people who did try to focus on finding more rational explanations for phenomenon, but such individuals were also very few in number in an age when literacy was a trait limited to the wealthy. For even the most educated, therefore, it was often very difficult to differentiate between a tall tale and a natural phenomenon. And for the lower classes, who rarely had access to education or even any people with education, the traditional practices of Europe's pagan past continued into the Christian Middle Ages. The exact forms of what was and was not continued and why is a topic beyond the scope of the short segment, but suffice it to say that while the rationale of the rituals often changed from placating pagan spirits to placating Christian ones, the forms of the ritual often remained recognizably similar. If you wanted to ensure a good harvest, you would hire someone, be it a wise woman, a village elder, or a local priest. They would come say some mumbo-jumbo, perform some ritual that may or may not have had some actual effect, and you were all set. Some of these practices had merit, and some were pure gobbledygook. But the important thing was that the peasant felt somewhat less threatened by a hostile world beyond their comprehension. And to be fair, that is worth something. If I think that there is a one in four chance that my rye crop will die no matter what I do, how energetically am I going to plow? My work has a one in four chance of being completely wasted. And yet if I don't plow, there's a 100% chance that I won't have any rye to eat. Feeling in control allows a person to go about the daily routine of things that are controllable without suffering under the threat of existential angst. The views of the educated towards these traditional practices ran the gamut from winking acceptance to outright hostility, but it's worth saying that the Catholic Church hierarchy never condoned unorganized mob violence. The Church was always very keen to be seen as rational, and an aid in the organization of a prosperous and stable society. This was basically the mission statement of the Church in the Middle Ages. Indeed, for most of the Middle Ages, the official view of the Church was that most witches were straight-up charlatans. They were certainly evil, but they were evil because they were taking advantage of the ignorance of simple people to extract money. In fact, belief in the existence of witchcraft was declared to be heretical in 786. Let me repeat that. Believing that witches had any power at all was considered a heresy. Witches were not in league with the devil. They were selling snake oil. As the Middle Ages matured, however, the Church expanded its organizational coherence and power, while also facing new and more dangerous threats to its intellectual monopoly. The declaration of the First Crusade by Pope Urban in 1097 set a new tone, whereby violence against those with differing beliefs was directly condoned. Shortly afterwards, the crusade against the heretical Cathars began, a conflict which resulted in the establishment of the Inquisition and the first burning of heretics. Between these disorders and the rise of a more mystical version of Christianity during the years surrounding the Black Death, the Church came to change its stance on witchcraft. Now the world was seen to be inhabited by a variety of demons who could capture a person and force them to be evil. If persuasion ended up being unable to drive off the demon, force was necessary to save the soul of the individual and the community at large. And so, in 1326, witchcraft was added to the list of heresies which the Inquisition could pursue. Manuals for the Inquisitors were produced, and witch trials began thereafter. These were, however, very, very limited in scale before 1400, uh, with only one or two victims at a time. Large-scale trials really began in 1420, consuming dozens of victims over the course of a decade or more, 
but remained a very localized phenomenon in areas where the Inquisition was already active in pursuit of other heretics. In the years before 1420 and 1580, these events became gradually more frequent and more intense. From 1580 to 1630, there were often numerous outbreaks of hysteria occurring simultaneously around Europe. They were not limited to Germany, but in Germany they were the most intense and the most widespread. They began to taper off after 1630. In 1635, the head of the Inquisition admitted that most of the witch trials had been in some way illegal and had not conformed to the proper legal procedures outlined in canon law. As governments became more centralized, these local hysterias were less able to take root, and by the 1690s, trials were either very individual cases or were limited to fringe areas like the North American colonies of England. The role of Martin Luther in all this has been hotly debated. The fact that the peak of witch-hunting activity occurred after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation is telling, but then it also did not begin until after his death. Luther himself has not been linked to the execution of any witches, and the only report he gave in his voluminous writings of a personal interaction with a witch involved him using persuasion to bring the man back into the fold. Luther was, in general, of the view that persuasion was the proper role of the religious establishment, and he was very critical of crusades, even against Muslims. He was also a man of the German Renaissance, and strove most of his life to find a way to unify the humanism of the new way of thinking with the spiritual and mystical enlightenment which he found in his reformed dogma. On the other hand, Luther wrote on several occasions very forcefully about the reality of witches and his hatred for them. In his most famous passage on the topic, Luther blamed a witch for the death of one of his brothers and said that witches should be shown no mercy. It seems hard to reconcile Martin Luther, the humanist, with Martin Luther, the witch-hater, but this is a modern perspective. And I should say that there is at least one piece of context to add before we can fully understand Luther's views on witches, and it brings us back to printing. As with all new industries, the early years of the printing industry saw massive bursts of creativity and output combined with an equally massive instability in the financial basis of the industry. Printers did not know what would sell, how to manage risk, and had not built up the financial capital to cushion the impact of failures. The response of most printers was simply to print as much as possible and hope that something would sell. There was a proliferation of broadsheets, which were literally just single pieces of paper of printed text, which were just sold sheet by sheet in the marketplaces very cheaply. Printers quickly found that works that played on people's emotions or dealt with sensational topics, sold well, and so there was a focus on that kind of material, just to keep things afloat. Simultaneously, authorities did not know how to regulate printing. They were unused to dealing with such a rapidly paced thing, and the printers just sort of popped up left and right. This context does a lot to explain the rapid spread of Protestantism itself, as there was nothing more sensational than an attack on the intellectual basis of the entirety of the European order. But it should be said that printing predated Luther, and it had been sensational well before the 95 Theses. Before Protestantism emerged to dominate the headlines, printers focused on other sensational tales, including the republishing of tall tales and rumors. Of course, such stories included stories about the depredations of witches. The most popular and notorious books on the subject of witch hunting were published soon after the advent of the printing press in 1440, and the proliferation of stories on the topic fed a growing hysteria. 
By the time of Martin Luther's birth in 1483, the belief in witches' powers was common knowledge, and the institutional process for conducting trials had been created. Luther, a strong believer in the new learning of the Renaissance, was a critical reader, but an avid reader. He was keen to pursue the reading of material that was not necessarily within the normal constraints of the old order, and there was nothing inherent in the stories of witchcraft which contradicted his worldview. Okay, so we understand a bit about why Luther believed in witches, but why was he advocating defecating in butter churns? Well, one of the most common beliefs in witches was that they would inhabit people's butter churns and steal the butter as it formed. There's actually a realistic basis for this belief. It turns out that to form butter, you need to agitate the milk so strongly that the membranes between the fat droplets in the milk break, allowing the fat to come together and condense out of the milk as butter. As with many micro-physical changes of this type, the process is much easier if the milk is warm. We now understand this process very well, and our industrial-scale butteries do a very good job at keeping milk in the right conditions to produce butter quickly and in a sanitary fashion. But in the Middle Ages, all they knew was that if you put milk in a thing and you mix it around for a long time with another thing, eventually butter happens. Sometimes it happened very fast, and sometimes it would just not ever happen. The link between the temperature and the ease of the formation of butter would not have been obvious at a time when temperature control was very, very difficult. The obvious conclusion, if you're trying to make butter and it's just not happening, is that something supernatural must be involved because you have no other rational explanation. So if you're a person in the Middle Ages and you have a witch stealing your butter, how do you stop it? Well, you do things to drive the witch away. Luther's remedy was based on the idea of insulting the witch away with human excrement. One wonders what his wife thought of his remedy. More tragically, if this was the remedy tried by his parents to drive off their, their butter witch, the death of his brother might be easier to attribute to insanitary butter than to the supernatural. Luther himself lost several children, though of course it's impossible to link this to contaminated butter. We don't even have real proof that he did, in fact, defecate in the churn beyond his own say-so, which might have just been rhetorical flair, for all we know. Other folk remedies for butter witches were likely more benign. Blessings from priests and the use of herbs were common, but the most popular remedy in the records, as is often the case, actually does have a basis in reality recognizable to a modern reader. In this remedy, the person whose butter is being stolen would heat up a horseshoe or another metal object until it was red hot. Then they would plunge it into the butter. The hissing and bubbling of the milk scalding on the hot iron was supposed to be the sound of the witch being killed. Of course, from our perspective, tossing a red hot iron into cold milk will raise the temperature of the milk, which will make it much easier to rupture the membranes around the fat droplets and form butter. I would love to end on such an uplifting coda, but this is, after all, agoraphobia. The reality is that Martin Luther's writings on witches had a life far beyond that of their author. While Martin Luther himself never burned a witch, his reputation amongst his followers meant that all his writings became sources of ethical guidance, even his personal correspondences and the transcriptions of his drinking parties. These documents and the opinions he expressed directly to his inner circle gave support for the burning of witches. Protestant areas were just as guilty as Catholic areas of this hysteria, and Luther's writings were directly cited to support this activity. As Germany was racked with famine, plague, and violence, those who were cut off from the support of family were particularly vulnerable. 
Widows, orphans, the elderly, the poor, or those who were simply unpopular, often had no one to speak up on their behalf. By the height of the trials, as many as four out of every five convicted witches was a woman, with the men often being relatives of the accused women. These spasms of hysteria may have killed as many as 60,000 people in particularly horrible ways. There are many lessons that can be drawn from the story of the witch trials, indeed as many as the different motives that cause a person to look into them in the first place. For myself, the role of the printing press in the story is particularly intriguing. The uncontrolled and irresponsible printing of fiction as fact, playing on popular fears of those outside the mainstream of society, seems like a lesson worth pondering. The fact that Luther, a man with multiple doctorate degrees and possessed of a powerful mind, was amongst those duped by this outpouring of publication is certainly something that I find, dare I say, scary. Good evening, everyone. Hello, everybody. Okay, so, yeah, uh, the milk diving and Martin Luther defecating in the butter churns. That was a fun one. And really, it, it, um, it got me started on a whole topic of research that's basically still going, and uh, you've heard about it recently in that, that conversation I had with Sam Hume not too long ago. I don't really have much to add to this one. Uh, I'll just say that uh, <laughs> the concept of a modern doctorate degree being possessed by Luther, uh, we, we probably shouldn't take that statement by me too literally, right? Uh, there were uh, different educational standards at the time, let's say, but I, I do stand by the fact that he was uh, an extremely well-educated person in the time. He was, you know, a key lecturer at, at Wittenberg University. He helped build the university, for crying out loud, and uh, he was extremely well-read and well-studied, um, pretty much as well-educated as anyone alive at the time. So, um, I definitely stand by the... Uh, the, the spirit of what I said, if not the actual specifics. Alright, what's next? Okay, folks, so when I looked at what was next, I've decided to split this episode in two. Very me move. Uh, but here's my justification. We're already uh, at the af well past the 45-minute mark, uh, although that's pre-editing. But the, uh, the conversation that I did for the next Agoraphobia... I had with the guys from Cannonball, uh, Cloud and Daniel. And, uh, yeah, that's an hour and a half long. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Uh, and then there's another episode after that still, uh, which was pretty fun. Uh, so I'm going to cut this here. Um, I'm going to just say, you know, remind everybody, once again, go check out Agoraphobia. Uh, I have an episode there that I'm not going to be including in these two episodes. Uh, and um, there's a lot of fun stuff up there that's that's just awesome. Uh, going way back to 2016 when we started doing this. Um, and yeah, uh, just go check it out. I think it's, it's worth checking out. Tune in in a week, I guess. I'll put together the next one in a week or so. I'm not going to take up the November episode with this. This is just fun. Um, so, see you in a week or so, and yeah, bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.